let's go ahead and get this started. Good morning, everybody. We are so excited to be live with Dr. Mesa, who is the infectious disease specialist with Texas Tech University Physicians here in El Paso. He is gonna be answering some of your questions regarding um, COVID-19. And we just wanna go ahead and kick things off with a couple of questions, Dr. Mesa. So if you don't mind, our first question is, what makes COVID-19 so different than some other pandemics like H1N1? Right, well, uh, morning everyone, and thank you for the invitation. Every uh, pandemic uh, has a different kind of uh, flavor, if you will, in the way that they start to affect people. Many pandemics uh, are very slow in their onset. Actually, no one really knows that they actually exist until, until later. Uh, I think the main difference with uh, this pandemic with this infection is mainly that the onset was very fast, just a few weeks, and it occurred in a very high uh, patient, condensed patient population. So China and the city of Wuhan with the features of high uh, amount of uh, concentration made this spread very quickly. The, the other feature that is also uh, relevant to, to take into account is that this virus uh, can really uh, spread out into the other individuals. Even though originally started from an animal to a human, the human to human transmission has occurred in a very uh, effective way, if you will. And mm -hmm. that had led to the widespread of these in a very short time period. So the time period between the start of the outbreak to the, uh, the dissemination of the infection has been the major difference. Okay, so my next question for you is, we've heard a lot about people who are potentially high risk for contracting the virus, obviously people who are immunocompromised, but, um, who exactly is considered to be at high risk for contracting the virus? And I guess another question that I have is, if you already have like an upper respiratory infection or you caught a cold or you have the, the regular flu, does that also make you at higher risk? Okay, so I think that we need to make here a distinction between high risk of becoming infected from the high risk of getting very sick. So the risk of becoming infected obviously will come from being exposed to a population that is infected. Let's say if you were right now living in New York, you will be a high risk for being exposed. Now, once you, had, uh, once you acquired the infection, your high risk population for getting very sick, that is, that you are so sick that you need to be admitted to a hospital, is going to be in this particular condition for those patients who are elderly, the so-called 65 patient population and older age, mm -hmm. and or people who have a immune system that is affected by a medical condition. One example will be, for example, uh, patients who have diabetes especially those 
with uncontrolled diabetes or any patient with a low immune system because they are taking medications for cancer therapy or medications for um, immune diseases like uh, lupus and things like that. So, so those patients are going to get sicker because they are going to be less likely to be able to fight back this infection. Okay, thank you for the information. And then we've obviously been hearing a lot about social distancing. Um, the city of El Paso just passed their stay home, stay safe ordinance uh, yesterday. And so I wanted to know, why is six feet the recommended space between people? Okay, the idea behind the six feet has to do with the mode of transmission of this virus. If you have a virus that only will spread through droplets, that is the small particles of basically spit when you cough or when you sneeze, gravity will pull those to the floor and it is calculated roughly, there is no exact number, that six feet should be the minimum distance that you need to stay away from someone because that will be the distance that it will take for that small droplet before it goes down to the floor. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have an infection that is called airborne, airborne, uh, an example would be tuberculosis, for example, the, the, the bacteria in this case of tuberculosis will stay in the air, not drop to the floor for several hours. So that uh, scenario of tuberculosis, as an example, to contrast with droplets, will not work the six feet. So fortunately, for the most part, for coronavirus, this droplet is the main mode of transmission and therefore the six feet is to be a roughly safe distance to keep from another person. Okay, um, and then I wanted to ask you, we've been hearing a lot of people refer to the curve of the disease um, and also this idea of hive immunity. So I wanted to ask you, for people who might be confused about what the curve is that everyone's referring to, what is the curve? And then also, what is this idea behind hive immunity? Yes, so the, the first question about the curve really has to do with the onset of the infection and the number of people that are getting sick at any given time. So if you have what we call a spike, that is the way that right now this infection is being transmitted outside of China, you have a very high peak of the wave of the infection. Imagine like a, like a wave, like a, you know, like a sea wave. Mm -hmm. And if you see that it goes up in a very steep uh, incline, that means that the resources that are going to be able to match the needs for medical care are going to be uh, stressed to the max. Okay. If you were to change that curve to a more flat curve, then the resources for medical care will be matched to the needs. And, and many of the other pandemics have been able to do that. So what you want to do is flatten that curve, meaning that the number of new cases doesn't go in a very high steep incline and therefore you can match the resources. Now, the other uh, term of herd immunity actually is herd, is H-E-R-D, uh, 
RD, it's actually, if you think about it, very similar to what we have seen with the influenza vaccine. So herd immunity is nothing else but those individuals who become infected to coronavirus will keep immunity against getting infected again. Mm -hmm. So the more people that are exposed to this virus, the more immunity you're going to have among the general population, the herd population. And if someone becomes infected with this virus, but he, ex he or she exposes, let's say, two more people, but those people already have antibodies against the infection, that immunity that they have is going to prevent them from becoming infected again. So herd immunity is good because mm -hmm. that will make the chances of passing this infection to another person less likely. Okay. So my next question is when we're talking about transmission and passage and things like that, there's been a lot of confusion about how long the virus will actually last on any given surface and things like that. So a lot of the questions that people have are what precautions should I be taking when I'm going to the grocery store or if I'm having food and groceries delivered to me. Um, we've even had questions from people like when I'm out in public and I get home, could the virus be on my clothes? Should I change my clothes before I even like get into the house? Um, so can you give us a little bit of information about that? Yes. So just for a little bit of microbiology, this virus has one feature that is in a way helpful for us to understand what to do. And one of them is, uh, first of all, viruses do not live very long outside of someone's body. The uh, viruses need to be inside a cell to stay alive. That's one, one important feature to keep in mind. The second one is, uh, this is a, what we will call a, a lipid-coated virus. That is that there is some fat, there's a layer of fat on the outside of that virus that can be used as an advantage for us to clean our clothing or any surface uh, with anything that can dissolve the fat. We know that soap and water can dissolve fat. We know that alcohol products can dissolve the fat and, and many other products, can, uh, products that are used for the same purpose can actually be of benefit. So if we think about that, then what we need to do is keep any surface that we touch with our hands, especially with uh, uh, clean, so these fatty uh, virus that, that can be destroyed with alcohol or with any Clorox or with soap and water is not touching our skin. So if someone, if let's say you go to the grocery store, you want to probably uh, clean the cart, the, the, anything that you are taking with you. Uh, if you touch any surfaces at the grocery store, uh, you can get um, you know, infected if you're not careful. So drive-through is a good idea. For example, you're going to the grocery store and try to minimize that. If you receive any, anything from the grocery store, any deliveries to your home, it, it would be safe to remove any boxes or any bags or anything that comes with. And remember that once you touch those surfaces with your hands, they need to be cleaned. And again, you can use soap and water or you can use alcohol formulations because 
what they will do to the virus is that they will destroy their, their coding and therefore will kill the virus. How many hours can a virus remain on a surface? It depends a lot on whether the surface is um, what we call hard surface or permeable. So for example, anything that is impermeable that you don't let water, doesn't let water go through, will probably stay a couple of hours on a surface. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's infectious, but if you don't clean that surface, then the infection can be acquired from that surface. There are very few studies right now to know exactly what happens with that virus once it leaves that surface, but I will be, I will be uh, cautious and I would assume that a couple of hours after someone has coughed or sneezed on a surface, the virus should be viable if you do not clean that area. That's great information. And I think um, we all feel a little bit better about um, the, the risk of contagion, especially like in terms of knowing what to do when you have deliveries and things like that. So my next question is about some of these home remedies that we've been hearing. A lot of information um, has been really going viral across the country, talking about some home remedies to um, basically cure coronavirus if you're infected. One of those, those viral videos that's been going around is something talking about drinking a lot of hot liquids to basically dissolve all of the mucus in your system. Um, so I wanted you to speak a little bit about the validity of some of these home remedies and what should somebody do if they do believe that they are infected? Right. So unfortunately, that will not work. And, and I'll tell you why it is unlikely to be effective in this setting. Uh, it, the virus will live mainly in three areas of your body, hopefully only two. That will be the nose, what we call your nasopharynx. Mm -hmm. Then it will leave behind your throat, the, which we call the oropharynx, and then it can leave inside your lungs when it causes severe infection. If you use any hot water, let's say that your hot, the hot water that you use will get rid of the virus inside your throat, that will not take care of the nasopharynx, which is right behind your nose. Furthermore, the temperature that you will need this water to be at in order to kill a virus will be so hot that you will basically burn yourself before the virus will be killed. So short version of the story is that it's not a good idea to use any hot water. Even if you were to use, let's say, a oral rinse or any antibacterial for the oropharynx, which is the, the throat, you still be not addressing the nose and the area behind the nose, and therefore it is unlikely that it will work. Thank you for that information. I think it's really gonna help our members kind of figure out what is true and what is not true on the internet. It's great that we have the internet and we have this technology to be able to connect and continue on with business in these times, but it definitely uh, is an opportunity for misinformation and leading to uh, more confusion as well. So before, there, there is a lot of things that you need to be careful when you watch the internet. So if somebody does think that they're infected, what steps should they take? Yes, and that has been emphasized 
uh, a lot by the local health department and actually nationwide, which is you want to make sure that you go home first. Obviously, if you feel very sick, if you feel that you need to go to a hospital, then you go to a hospital. But first and foremost, you want to contain yourself from spreading the infection to another individual. So you go home, then you are going to contact your provider. And if you do not have a provider, my understanding is the local city, county, uh, health department system, the, the University Medical Center and their clinics do have an access to medical care, even if you are not insured and ask them to be evaluated. What they will do is they will ask you a few questions that are related to the chances that you may be a individual of risk for becoming, for having exposed to this virus. And then they will communicate back with you for the proper testing procedure if you are in need of one. Okay, great information for everybody out there. I know people are worried. Um, it's allergy season, it's regular flu season, it's cold season, and it seems like a lot of the symptoms of all of these kind of share symptoms with coronavirus. So it is difficult to determine, should I go in, should I not go in, should I just self-quarantine, um, and all of that. Yeah, and you know, whenever in doubt, quarantine is not a bad idea. However, at some point, you need to know whether you actually have this infection or another infection, because I mean, there is a good chance that you can have a strep throat or you can have, as you said, the flu or any other virus. And there are ways that the doctors can check you for that as well and take care of you as you need if you have other infection related to a bacteria or something else that can be treated. Okay, so my final question before I open it up to our audience questions is, we know that medical professionals, nurses, doctors, everybody really in the medical profession right now is extremely um, overtaxed with dealing with this issue. So my question for you, Dr. Mesa, is how can we, how can the community come together and help you all and support you all during this really difficult time? Well, uh, we already actually mentioned about one measure, which is not to overflow the hospitals and the clinics. Mm -hmm. So if you are not in a high risk exposure or if you are not very sick and you can manage your medical condition from home, many insurance companies have what they call telemedicine, for example, mm -hmm. and they can treat you over the phone on a video system. That would be very helpful. The other thing that I'm going to make a, a mention about it because I think and I've seen it often is the face mask, the surgical face mask that people wear. Uh, I'm not going to say that are absolutely not necessary, but on the other side, I think that people overestimate the benefit of wearing a face mask. The protection that you can get is very minimal, if any, and especially the N95 masks, they are really mainly for the medical personnel because we are exposed in a very close environment sometimes in the patient's room. So those resources uh, are not being available to the medical providers when, and they are used by the general public when they couldn't be used in the right setting. So I think that the help that the public in general provides is, is through those measures to being 
judicious and conscious that there are people in the field, in the medical field, that need those resources that could really do uh, have a better use of, of uh, those masks and the gloves and, and things mm -hmm. like that. So that would be, I think, the, 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 what we call the social responsibility to have towards the medical community. So thank you so much for that information. Um, and I'm gonna go ahead and jump into the public questions. So again, if you have a question for Dr. Mesa, you can ask us via Facebook Live in the comments section. In addition to that, if you are logged into Zoom, you can either submit a question via the question and answer panel, or you can go ahead and raise your hand and I will unmute you so you can ask your question live. Um, and you can also, of course, still call in by phone. The number is 1-346-248-7799. Uh, and the user ID number is 828-700-833. So the first question that we have from our audience is, is it true that most individuals don't demonstrate symptoms? If so, what would you recommend to do? Yeah, in this particular case, we know that people who do not have a fever or a cough of a shortness of breath can be transmitted, can transmit the infection to other people. That's been shown by looking at the amount of virus you may have without symptoms. Mm -hmm. The reality of it is, is that the majority of the patients actually will have some symptoms. And they may start with no symptoms and they may infect other people. But again, I'm gonna make a very general statement, not necessarily that it's 100% correct, but the risk of infection of someone who, do not have, uh, who does not have any symptoms, even though it's not zero, is not the highest uh, risk for transmission. That is, you may have the infection with no symptoms, and you will be likely to infect other people, but you are less likely to infect other people if you have the fever, you have the cough, and if you have, have the sore throat, you're gonna have high risk to pass your infection to someone else. Now, what to do when you are not having any symptoms? Well, if you know that you were exposed to someone who might have had this infection, that's when the, or that you have traveled to areas where the infection has been widespread. Let's say you come from New York, and I think that recommendation has been already been given. If you come from New York and you come to El Paso, you wanna have to self-quarantine because even if you have no symptoms during those few days, initially five, six days, from the time that you got exposed, you can actually pass your infection to someone else. So quarantine is something that you can do and 14 days is right now the average and I think that would be a safe measure to take. Great, so we have a couple more questions about when it comes to symptoms. So I'm gonna group these two together. Um, the okay. first is, how long does it take for symptoms to actually come up and what are generally the first symptoms to appear? Yes, the average, okay, the average incubation time period is about five to seven days. That is, 
that most people will be symptomatic within that day uh, time period. However, the end of the incubation period is 14 days, meaning that you can have someone who will not have any symptoms until day 14. If the average is five or seven, there will be people who will have symptoms in day three after being exposed or in day 14. Now, the most common sign or symptom that people have reported is fever. How do you define fever? Fever on average, again, very, there are many definitions of a fever, but anything higher than 100 degree Fahrenheit should be considered fever. And most patients, about uh, almost 88, 90% of those patients will have fever. Second most common will be cough. And the cough is a, what we call a dry cough. You don't have a lot of phlegm, you just feel this kind of tickle on your throat and you, you will be coughing. And then after that, you can have what we call the muscle pains, the joint pains, the sore throat, the sneezing. So many others, some people may even have, uh, for example, what we call gastrointestinal symptoms like diarrhea and things like that. But by the, by, by the most part, the fever, and the cough, the dry cough, will be your main signs and symptoms. So another question about um, some symptoms that have been rumored to be an indicator of COVID-19. This question is, is the rumor about loss of smell and taste being an indicator of the disease true? I'm sure that there will be people who will report the loss of, uh, of a smell or, or, or taste simply because when you have an inflammation of the upper airway, that is your nasopharynx, your oropharynx, the sensitivity to some smells is lost or some flavors. So I would not be surprised if that is a, a, a case, the case in some of the patients that suffered this infection, but I would not use it as a diagnostic marker. I would not use it as a completely 100% reliable sign that that's what the patient has. As, as you may already, and, the, and your, the audience may be aware, there's really only one way to know for sure that you have this infection, and that is to get tested, which again, testing right now has become a little bit of a challenge, but the only way to know for sure that you have an infection is by getting tested with these uh, tests that actually look for the genetic material that is present in the secretions of someone who's infected, and that will be the most reliable way to know that you have this infection. Um, so on the issue of testing, we do have a couple of questions about that. The first question is, does El Paso have enough tests right now to meet the need of the community? And then the second question is, who has priority to get testing? Yes. The health department and the local hospitals do have the capacity to test population at risk. The use of these tests right now has become prioritized, has been selected to the highest risk patients. That is, if this individual has the signs and symptoms in a history of exposure, either documented or potential, will be get tested. What we do not want to do right now is just to test 
population that is low risk. Mm -hmm. And there is a balance between low risk and high risk. There is a balance between why would you consider yourself a high risk and low risk. Right now, for the most part, the local health departments are making the decision whether you should get tested or not. The anticipation in the next few weeks is that once more testing capacity is available from all the laboratories that make these tests, will the testing will be widespread. Uh, there is now the possibility, which is good, of taking the sample for testing from home, and that is going to be available hopefully soon, where instead of having to go to a laboratory yourself to get the sample collected, you can actually collect the sample yourself at home, and then you can send it out for testing, and in that way, you don't expose anyone else, and you find out whether you have the infection or not. And um, that home testing, do you know how that's going to be available, like how you will be able to request a home testing uh, kit? I would, I would look into the city, county, health department websites and inquire or look into what is it that they have as far as that accessibility. I actually saw the announcement yesterday, so the announcement obviously comes always in anticipation of the availability of the resource, mm -hmm. but I will keep up to date on the website from the health department, and then they will be able to provide you the information about this access to this resource. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Mesa. And we just have time for one more question. So the last question that I see coming in through our Zoom Q&A panel is, um, do I need to worry about my pets at home? Can animals transmit or catch the virus? Short answer is no. Uh, viruses, even though in this particular case, we're able to pass from one species to another, the chances that a pet will become infected with this particular virus will be very low because this virus did not come from a dog or a cat. I'm assuming that the pets will be dogs and cats for the most part, but it was not the species that it came from. So I would be not very concerned about it simply because the chances that some exposure will pass this virus from the human to a pet will be highly unlikely. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesa, for joining us today. We are very lucky to have caught you. I know that you are incredibly busy right now, um, but we are really grateful for you sharing this information, helping to educate our members and businesses from across all of El Paso. Um, again, thank you for joining us. We will be making this uh, session available via our podcast, our Sharing Sweat Equity podcast. So if you check um, either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud, today around four o'clock, you will see that we have it available as a podcast in case you missed the beginning um, or you weren't able to stay with us for the entire time. Again, Dr. Mesa, thank you. We wish all of you and your colleagues the best in dealing with this uh, public health crisis, and we hope that you stay safe and stay healthy. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for the opportunity to share this information with your public. Thank you. And everybody, we will be having another live Facebook webinar session. If you are looking for financing options 
for your business. We will have First National Bank of Texas in this afternoon to share with you some of the financial resources that they have available for businesses during this critical time. So we hope to see you back here this afternoon. Thank you all so much and stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesa. It was great getting to have this conversation with you. The information was fantastic and I feel much more reassured now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that's the case because uh, there's a lot of panic right now and the last thing you want is people panicking without any reason and you know trying to make or take decisions that are not really in the best interest of yourself and the, and the public really. It's helpful to stay calm and composed and take this, you know, one thing, one day at a time. Yes, and, and also some of that misinformation, like there's that voicemail that's been going viral that, that was specifically talking about like, oh, all you need to do is drink really hot liquids and teas and soup and, and it'll help clear your system. And, and, you know, some people, especially those in the vulnerable populations, really believe that and it's it's very harmful to them yeah and people will do things that really defeat common sense and i think that's one of the major problems that uh the you know the again the, the panic reaction is i'm gonna get rid of this my way and uh and and that's all i care and really the risk of harming yourself is higher than the benefit and really with no basis at all. So you are really putting yourself in a situation that doesn't really benefit you. And on the other side, um, it just, you know, people waste money and waste uh, resources and, and do things that are not really, you know, helpful for, for anyone. It's just probably the, probably the vendor who sold you the product or, you mm -hmm. know, the profiting that uh, people got is just, it's incredible. But you know that's the way. That's the way it always happens in these situations. People panic, and there's always someone who wants to take advantage of you. Yep, I agree completely. Thank you so much, Dr. Massa. And if you need anything You're from welcome. us, Hispanic Chamber, please do not hesitate to reach out. We are here to be a resource for you as well. Again, we want to thank Dr. Massa for taking time out of his incredibly busy schedule to talk with us um, and provide us with some critical information about this public health crisis. As usual, we want to thank our supporters, Sun Carpets, who has done our recording studio for us, and of course, Epicenter of El Paso. If you are looking for commercial real estate in the El Paso area, we encourage you to reach out to Epicenter. So thank you all for joining us, and we will see you all on the next episode of Sharing Sweat Equity, a business podcast. This is your host, Michelle Luevno, signing off.